Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series, I'm exploring the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a new online resource that brings together objects and artefacts held by museums, archives and manufacturers from across the county. I'll be speaking to curators, artists, enthusiasts and researchers about everything from the exquisitely detailed medieval embroidery known as Opus Anglicanum to costumes worn by visitors to Blackpool's Pleasure Beach in the 1930s. For this episode, we're heading to Blackburn, where the museum has a collection of textile swatches and designs by a now-closed local company called Birtwistle and Oddy. I spoke to Caroline Wilkinson from Blackburn Museum and Art Gallery to find out more. I'm Caroline. I'm History Curator at Blackburn Museum and Art Gallery, and my role here is to um, look after and interpret the very diverse history collections here at Blackburn Museum and Art Gallery. I absolutely love Blackburn Museum. It is such a beautiful building as well. It is always such a joy to visit. Can you tell me a bit about the history of the space itself? So yes, um, Blackburn Museum and Art Gallery opened on the 11th of June in 1874 and was one of the first purpose-built free museums to open outside London. The museum building itself was designed by Woodsell and a Colcutt architects who were commissioned by the Free Library Committee following a competition held to design the new building. Uh, so when it first opened, it was known as the Blackburn Free Library and Museum as the town's library was located on the ground floor uh, with the museum and art gallery on the first floor. The building was extended further in 1894, expanding the library and creating an additional gallery space, which opened with a huge exhibition of artwork, both borrowed and owned by the museum. In 1975, the library moved to its current site on Town Hall Street and the museum now occupies the entire building. Like many local museums established in the 19th century, Blackburn has a very varied collection of art and art objects, including uh, British 19th and 20th century fine art. We have um, a collection of books and coins known as the Ari Hart Collection. We have a large collection of Japanese prints as well as Greek and Russian icons. We have Egyptology and we have, of course, our local history collections and industrial history collection, including the Lewis Textile um, Collection, which was formerly housed at the Lewis Textile Museum. Um, and we're coming up to our 150th birthday now in 2024. And so our collections continue to expand and evolve to reflect narratives and stories that are important to people and communities living in the borough now. Now, can you tell me about the Burt Whistle and Oddy pieces that you have in your collection? What do we know about this company? What do we know about how they entered the collection? Well, we don't know a great deal about the company. And what we do know is mostly from um, a tour that was given at the mill in um, 1969. What we do know is that Burt Whistle and Oddy were producers of jacquard woven fabrics and they operated from Prospect Mill in Blackburn during the 20th century. They produced textiles in rayon and cotton, and particularly furnishing fabrics and brocades. Uh, the company was established in 1907 by Richard Birtwistle and A.M. Oddy. Um, and up to the mid-1920s, they were producing textiles for export, um, including fabrics targeted towards specific international consumers, particularly in India, West Africa and South America. Uh, by the late 1920s, they were trading in jacquard woven brocades 
and these were sold to merchant converters in Manchester and London. And then, of course, uh, World War II um, broke out and the focus of the textile industry shifted to produce wartime textiles. While some mills continued to operate producing textile cloth and camouflage, many mills, including Prospect Mill, were closed under the wartime concentration scheme where mills were closed to the government in order to concentrate production due to reduced workforce and resources. And in Blackburn, this reduced the number of active mills from around about 65 to around about 20. And when the mill did reopen, it concentrated on the production of utility clothing, um, a national scheme that would, had been introduced in 1941 to offer a limited range of affordable and well-designed civilian clothing during the war. Uh, the utilities scheme was abolished in 1952 and Bert Wissolotti gradually increased their design and production of burnishing fabrics. Um, so what we have here in the collection is a number of samples that were made by the company uh, from about the mid 20th century to 1972 when Bert Wissolotti ceased production. Um, what's really nice about the collection that we do have is that while it has fabric samples, it also includes some examples of the design process too. So some sketches and some point paper designs and point paper designs of the textile patterns drawn on the grid. So the collection includes a range of fabrics produced for different purposes. And we have samples of burnishing fabrics, which might have been used for upholstery or curtains. Um, and there are samples of ecclesiastical fabrics produced for the church. But what's really interesting is that we have some of the samples and designs that were believed to have been produced for exports to West Africa in the mid 20th century. And it's less clear what these were used for and why they were produced. Such an interesting collection. And, you know, looking at the history of the company itself and things like the repurpose during the war years, it really, through the company, you can sort of start to understand some of the wider social and political histories of Britain through that period as well. Um, now, with the pieces that you believe were created for export, what kind of patterns and designs are we seeing here in the collection? Well, the, um, uh, animals is a, a re repeating motif. There's an awful lot of elephants on, um, there's elephants on a number of the designs that we have. Interestingly, with some of the designs, um, they are, um, the animal motifs are alongside um, regal motifs like crowns. Um, and we have the ER cipher on a number of them. So we've got this really interesting combination of perhaps um, elephants and um, lions on some of them as well, palm trees, and then this very sort of uh, regal iconography also. Um, all of the, these particular designs are in um, white and red, um, and they are all banded in yellow and green as well. It's so interesting because we've got, through that imagery, we've got this real mix of potentially local images but then also this real kind of colonial theme running through it yes, as well yes absolutely absolutely um it's a it's a really interesting combination and it's not completely clear exactly why they were being produced in that way um and aimed at those markets we believe that they were we think that we'll probably produce around about in the 50s the early 50s so i i, I guess there's some possibility it might be linked to the coronation or um possibly um, a visit out there uh, during the 50s but there's there's no clarity in exactly why these pieces were being produced they're all bands as well they repeat patterns in, in a, like a border um, almost a border pattern mm. um, we, we have a number of designs we have a few um, actual samples of the fabric as well It'd be, it would be fantastic to find out exactly why they were being being produced it would be really fascinating to find out more about them
so much to unpick in these collections that have not been uh, you know studied extensively in the past there's so much there that we could potentially learn about these trades the the manufacture and the relationships as well the kind of colonial relationships that are evident in this it's fascinating and so how did these come to be in the collections of blackburn museum uh, so the fabrics came into the collection via um, a previous Bert Whistle RD um, employee. And can you describe some of the pieces in detail, like the designs, the jacquard patterns, and also the swatches themselves? Um, yes. So there's there's um, one design that has um, this. Um, it has a lion um, sat with a crown um, over its head, and it has the words Ati. Dade, Kinian, um, and as we understand, Kinian means lion in a Yorubu, um, but it has this interesting, uh, it has the ER cipher in the background really, really faintly. So I think that's, that's a particularly direct um, contrast between, a cultural contrast that you can see in that one. Elephants are um, a particularly strong theme throughout um, all of the um, or many of the designs that we have and this is particularly beautiful particularly beautiful one where you have where we have them um, um, adult elephants um, and a baby elephant and it's a re repeating pattern um, uh, walking alongside and the baby elephant is holding the tail of one of the adult elephants um, and that's bordered that's in black uh, in red and white and it's bordered with a green um, and yellow um, either side. And how are these pieces displayed in the collection? Are they loose swatches or are they in a sample book? Um, they're loose, they're loose. The, um, the fabric swatches we have are quite small um, and we just have those um, folded. Um, the designs themselves are, they may have been in a swatch book at some point, but they are in our collection as separate. Um, sheets and they have an awful lot of notes on them which is quite fascinating as well um, so one of the reasons we thought that perhaps they were possible other than the ER cipher um, that they were possibly 1950s is one of them um, says uh, uh, please reproduce the effect used in a design from 1951 um, which I think is quite quite nice you get a little bit more information about how they how the processes works how they communicated to each other um, about how to produce the fabrics that's so interesting. So these notes, these like handwritten notes that we see on them, is it all about the, the manufacture, the actual production of the textiles? Is that the notes that we're seeing? They're sort of instructive. Yeah, it does. It sort of makes reference to other designs and repeating what they did in other designs. Um, it also, they, they're also numbered as well um, to cross-reference. Um, so we, we can get, could possibly get some idea of what order they were um, produced in as well and which ones were the first ones to be produced and uh, just based on the numbers that they've been given um, but yeah <clears throat> it's just an interesting um, it's an interesting little insight to how they were when they were passing the the designs on to the um, presumably the card punches for the jacquard uh, machines um, how they were communicating the little nuances that weren't necessarily obvious from the designs I wanted to find out more about working in the textile industry in Blackburn, so I talked to Richard Crowsdale, who worked as a loom fitter in the 1950s and 60s. He shared some of his recollections with me. I'm Richard, 
and my job was a loom fitter for the British Northrop Loom Company in Blackburn. So how long did you work at Northrop Looms for? Well, I started at 15. That was in 1950. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah, six years apprenticeship. And then, of course, to in the army, I had to do national service, you know, in my day. Yeah. So I was, there, I was there 18 years altogether. 18 years, and of course, fantastic. 18 years. And then, of, of course, the, the loom job just faded away and it just closed. I like the other, all the loom companies closed including ours, yeah, yeah. And can you tell me a bit about what you did there? What was your day-to-day -day kind of routine? Well, my, my, my routine was actually putting the machine together. And there's a lot of work in a loom, believe me. Not only put, erecting it, but, it, you know, a, a, lo a loom, 90% of a loom is cast iron. Now, as you know, if you have two pieces of cast iron, and you have a space and you try to bolt it together, unless those surfaces meet up perfectly, then it will crack. Cast iron is very strong, but very brittle. So that's where the fitting came in, of filing to make one surface meet up with the other. So and every part of the, of the machine, had, all the surfaces had to meet up. That's, that was, that's where the fitting came in. And of course, the settings for the machine as well. You do understand all that, all the settings for the machine. And we made one, only one loom. I mean, we made 40 different models of looms to weave anything. We not just cotton, wool, silk, jute, wire, you name it. We've made looms to, to weave anything. Wow, wire, wire weaving, that's incredible. Wire as well, yes, I wire loom to weave anything, yeah, yeah. Wow, and can you explain a bit about what jacquard weaving is? Well, a jacquard is a mechanical computer, to, to, be, to give it correct. It was invented in 1801. It's not an in, a new invention by any means. It was invented by a Frenchman called jacquard. Now, it, what that is, it's above the loom, You've got the loom and, and, and the jacquard is a, it's a, it's a, like a big, it's a big thing really. They're a large machine, but it's all like done with punch cards that bring all the threads when, it, when the machine's working, brings all the threads up to make the patterns. You, you could weave a picture with them in colour. And from a distance, it would look like an oil painting. It was so good, fantastic to see. And that's how a jacquard worked. Amazing. What were your favourite looms to work on? Oh, the, oh my favourite, yes, was the T model, RS model. And that's what I think Bertwith and Ozzy had in their factory. They would either be one of the two. They'd either be the T model or the S model for jacquard weaving. And can you tell me a bit about those two, the T model, the S model? What could they do? What were they like? A modern loom, a Northrop loom wasn't like the old power loom. A Northrop loom had a battery on, what they call a battery. Where on the old Lancashire loom, they had what they call a cot, a bobbin, in other words. Now, the, the weaver, as a rule, was run four, four looms. Now, her job was to look after the, 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 the shuttle 
every four, every four, four to five minutes, she'd have to stop the machine, take the empty shuttle out, put the new, a new shuttle in with the coffin, set the machine going again. And she was doing that on four looms all day. She also had to look for what they call floats or faults, breakages in the threads. On an average, say, 44-inch loom, you would have 2,000 threads coming from the back beam through. And if one of them was broke, she'd to see it stop the machine and piece it by hand, which uh, was quite skilled, believe me. And they had what they called a weaver's knot. And they used to twist it a certain way and tie it. And when it was woven in the cloth, there's no way could you ever, ever see that knot. And it was called a weaver's knot. And they were clever with it. It was quite a skilled job, believe me. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly skilled, incredibly skilled. Yeah. Now, on, on, on a Northrop loom, the weaver didn't touch the shuttle. They had what they call a battery on with bobbins. Now, as the shuttle left, say, you've got the slayer. From leaving the, the, the left-hand box, coming across the race board to, to, to the right-hand box, it would leave there empty. It would go into the other box. It would knock the old bobbin out, put the new bobbin in, cut the thread, and the machine never stopped. So the weaver never touched the shuttle. They had also another lady, what they called the battery filler lady, just walking down, say, a row of 30 looms one way and 30 looms the other, 60 looms in all, and that was her job, just keeping the batteries charged up with bobbins. That was her job. They also have what they call a wart stop on the loom as well at the back. So each thread, each thread came through a wire, what they called a drop wire. And when it, when it, when it, when it was set up, the, the thread was above the, 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 the bars, serrated bars. If the thread broke, the wire dropped, got caught in the serrated bar and the machine stopped. The weaver knew there was a thread broke. So that was easy. Oh, by the way, on the old power looms, they got fined for bad work if she missed that and it went for cloth inspection. She got she got fined three eightens, penny eight me in proper money, in the old money. Yeah. Got fined for bad work. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they had to keep their, keep their eye on the, what they were doing. But like I say, on the North, on the North Rock loom, she knew right away the loom stopped, it was a thread broke. So that was easy. The battery, as I said, the shuttle, she didn't touch it. So the difference there, I'm going to tell you something now, the difference there between the decking four loom weaver, she could manage four looms. On an orthodox loom, on plain cloth, they could manage up to 60. 30 one way and 30 the other, one weaver. That did away with a lot of, of weavers like, yeah, in the, on the old uh, power looms, yeah. And what was the social side like of working at Northrop? The most wonderful job I ever had in my life. If I could go back tomorrow, I would go back and enjoy every minute again. My apprenticeship years there was the six happiest years of my life. Oh. Now then, that's how much I love my job. It was a wonderful firm to work for. Although it was a large firm, it was still a good, good company to work for. And I was really happy there. Oh, that's fantastic. That's lovely. So was it quite a sort of close-knit community with the people that you were working with? Oh, yes. It was like a family. That's why I liked it so much. It was just like working for a family. As big as the company was, it was just like working for a family. I used to get out of bed of the morning, 
knowing I was going to be happy all day, it, it was a wonderful feeling, really. Looking back, it was a wonderful, yeah, it was, believe me, it was a wonderful, a wonderful life. We'll go back to War Street, and that was the original name of the mill. And it was a small, when it started, it was a small weaving shed. So it got the name Cottage by the Sea. That was its nickname. A lot of mills in Blackburn, they were all better known with the nickname than they were with the proper name. Oh, some of the funniest names, I'll tell you some in a minute. But War Street originally, it was called Cottage by the Sea because it was a small mill next to the canal. <laughs> <laughs> now, the mill chimney, the chimney to the mill, uh, the chimney, the mill chimney was in the middle of the street. And what are some of the other names of the, the mills that we used? In the, in, the, in the watch house, all mills are what they call a watch house. In other words, an office where you walk through into the mill or across the mill yard. That's where the manager would be there of a morning if you was late. So the, the, I was saying, in the office as you went into the mill yard, at, at the mill, there was a clock in the window and it got the name Clock Face, the nickname Clock Face. <laughs> Excellent. Clock Face, Cottage by the Sea. These are brilliant names. Now the nicknames to other mills I can tell you about in Blackburn. You've got the, the, the Trap or the Rat Trap. The reason being, it was in Orwood Street. It had a, a rat-shaped veranda over the street where the arson carts used to go underneath for loading the cloth in bad weather. So, you know, to get out of the weather rain. There was an home called the Lobby where the weavers had to walk down a long passage to get to the weaving shed, a lobby. You'd also got the Butter Tub, which there was two reasons for the name Butter Tub. And that its proper name was Springfield Mill. But the other name for the butter tub was another reason uh, as well. In the 1870s, when the old man was living, old Lewis, he bought a warehouse full of old butter barrels from Liverpool. All the butter used to come over from New Zealand in like wood barrels in those days. The mill yard was piled up and he had the men in the yard breaking the barrels up, stacking all the wood up in the mill yard. It was a, there was a coal strike and it, the coal strike came off and, and the, the Springfield mill was the only mill in Blackburn that kept running during the coal strike. All the other mills, if the coal was used up, they had to stop, no, no coal, they couldn't run the engines. Now, all the all, the mill owner there, all the, the doors in the mill had a little flap cut out at the bottom so the cats could wander anywhere through the mill at night keeping the vermin down, the rats and mice which, <sighs> that were plagued with, the rats and mice, you know, mills, they were. And that's what, that were a cat hole. And the cats could wander around the mill at night, keeping keeping the vermin down, the cat hole. <laughs> I love that. I love it the so mill, much. There was this stocking needle, that was another mill. And it got that name because of the tall, thin mill chimney. The old silly nicknames they had for the mills. Another one was called the smut. And the smut, why that got the name, it was the, the when they were firing the, the coal, all the smoke from the chimney and the soot dropping. On a Monday, it used to drop all over the washing in their yards and it got the name smoke. As the Burt Whistle and Audi designs at Blackburn Museum show, the textile trade between Manchester, Lancashire and West Africa has a long history. I was keen to speak to someone who could shed more light on the links between trade, indigenous textiles and colonisation. So I was delighted to speak to Joseph Iavoro, a sculptor and public artist and co-founder of the Creative Hands Foundation. 
Over our video call, he talked to me about his cross-cultural textiles project with the Creative Hands Foundation. And this looked at how textiles produced in Hyde, near Manchester, were sold throughout West Africa. I am Mr. Joseph Ayagoro. I am a sculptor and a public artist. I'm also the CEO of Creative Hands Foundation here in Manchester. And we use the art as a tool to engage with underprivileged in our community to broaden their knowledge of um, indigenous art also, and culture in Africa. Can you tell me about your journey to becoming a public artist? Yes, I started my professional career shortly after I left Aushi Polytechnic in Nigeria, having studied sculpture. Luckily enough, I worked with the Ministry of Culture and Information in Abeokuto State as a cultural officer. And I was assigned to produce four public sculptures for various roundabouts in the state capital. Thereafter, I became a consultant to the state government and was commissioned to produce different sculptural pieces, metal gates and um, water fountains all around Manchester. I also work with also other architectural firms, engineering firms to produce various types of um, artistic embellishments in private and public buildings before coming to the UK. And since my arrival in the UK, I also studied at um, University of East London, where I had master's degree in, public, in art and architecture, and also at the University of Bolton, where I studied public art. And ever since then, I've been practicing my arts, and I was fortunate enough to produce two public um, art pieces for Conway County Council at the Cardero Park, Landudno Junction, Two of my sculptural pieces are, are, are there. After a very competitive um, interview, I was fortunate to have been given that commission. So after that, I've been working on some private commissions and exhibited internationally and also in the UK as well. Now we've been hearing about the woven Burt Whistle and Audi fabrics in Blackburn Museum, but the Cross-Cultural Textiles Project looks at printed textiles. Could you tell me about the history of wax prints? Uh, the history of wax prints, as I could recall, from my interaction with um, people in Nigeria, particularly in Abekuta, I grew up, actually I studied in Abekuta, I did my youth call in Abekuta, National Youth Service Corps, and worked with the state government. And that is where you have one of the largest um, handmade textile wax prints in the whole of Nigeria, I can tell you that. I happened to visit the local traders and saw them actually producing a wax print by hand. There apart, that apart, having studied art in Nigeria, I was fortunate enough to produce some wax printed textiles as part of our coursework. Unknown to me that coming to the UK, I will see such design at Mosey, that's medium science and industry, where I happened to visit on a certain occasion. And it was there I saw so many copies of um, the textiles. I wondered how come these designs we use in Africa, how come they are here in Manchester? It all started in Indonesia, where the Dutch that colonized Indonesia were fascinated by the designs of what the local traders were producing their wax print and decided to take those designs to 
Netherlands with the ultimate aim of um, maximizing the production because at that time it coincided with when there was an um, industrial revolution and globalized um, trade going on between Africa and also in Europe. So they decided to use their machines to produce vast quantities of those fabrics, targeting their local residents and also for the, in the Indonesian community as well. But unfortunately, the Indonesian market, they derive great pleasure or satisfaction in using their locally made fabrics because they have high, very high quality and very intricate designs and high quality of color as well. So there was a backlog, nothing how to sell their, dispose of their product or to sell their products. They decided to eventually move them to post. So many of the factors actually closed down apart from one of them that managed to channel those fabrics to West Africa. And behold, when others failed, they, they managed to succeed by selling their, their wasp printed textiles, which opened the door for many European countries, including particularly a Manchester textile industry, as well as the Dutch and Swiss, to start uh, producing wasp fabrics targeted in the African community. Now, for people who don't know, could you please explain the process of how wax print fabrics are created? I want to start, they have two different methods of producing it. Um, let me start from the industrial ones. Based on our trip to Ghana, it was there we saw how the calico fabrics arrives at the factory and now it is finally transformed into a finished piece. Then thereafter, it's washed with bleach in the process they call mesmerizing and washing with bleach and mesmerizing and it goes into about eight different stages the designs up to now to date they are they are produced at um, abc works in hyde where you have the designers after connotation with the traders in ghana they comes with their various patterns and designs of what they want to do and with that information the designs are produced and color schemes were also designed and sent to to Kusumbo in Ghana. Thereafter, that, that those designs are transferred, the images are produced and transferred into copper to copper rollers, both for, for both sides of the design, engraved with those designs because of the effect of the chemical and exposure to light, those um, chemicals um, kind of engraved into the into the copper rollers and that is where the molten wax or the hot wax have access to to, to to introduce the wax into the fabric to prevent other areas from the fabric from having contacts to to the wax so to make sure the wax actually penetrate deep down into the fabric because the fabric is very thick as well because that's what the african market actually uh, preferred. So thereafter, it is dyed with indigo, indigo dye. The indigo dye have been, have been immersed into the fabric, immersed to the fabric of the same pattern and motif. Then thereafter, it is washed in hot bath and the wax dissolves. 
So what happens later on is to try and what is taken to the um, called cracking or bubbling machine. It kind of, is the kind of machine that has a special effect on the fabric. As you can see, some of the part designs here are all the, the effect that the machine does to the to the fabric by um, twisting all sort of um, uh, movement in the chamber to produce certain quality of designs on the fabric itself when the dye is still there before the dye is removed. So that is only what's brought about these very designs you can see. Then thereafter it is washed and the, the wax is removed. When the wax is removed, other thing they have to do is to introduce certain patterns with it, with, um, like I said, the cracking method, they use wax as well. We now have to use uh, printing where the inks going to be like uh, like doing screen printing. So other patterns are actually printed with different colors onto the fabric itself. That's lovely. Thank you so much. The Cross-Cultural Textiles Project focused, as you mentioned, on this Manchester-based company, ABC Wax, and its sister company in Ghana, um, Akasombo Textiles Limited. Can you tell me just a little bit about the history of this company? The history of the company is sorted as far back as, um, not precisely, but sometimes around maybe hundreds of years ago, 1893, when companies in in Netherlands started producing fabric. And it was one Scottish uh, entrepreneur by name Ebenezer, Ebenezer Brown Fleming that actually was working with the ABC, with, um, was working as a trader for Harlem, which is another company based in Netherlands. What happened was that the Harlem cantoned, or what not, that's HRM, that HKM, uh, that is their short abbreviation of their names, were producing those textiles for the, the, the national market, but unfortunately, because they failed to, um, were not redesigned, were not received by the populace in uh, Indonesia. So the Scottish entrepreneur by name, Brown Fleming, took these textiles and targeted, took them to, to Africa or West Africa, as you can see. So there was massive reception by local trade and also the community as well. So that was what actually opened the doors to the European market. When the Manchester textile designers in Manchester that formed the Calico industry, about 46 of them, they were producing textile before by Newton Bank, so eventually um, bought one of these, these uh, Swiss company they also produce textile as well, because the, the Swiss company as well, known as the formerly known as a, known as ABC Wax, was also based in was um, a part of the textile industry that were that have gained popularity in Africa because over eighty percent of their fabric were already received by the African community. So they were they had no choice but rather to to acquire that company, which eventually became the ABC Wax that now produced textiles for the African market.
And why did these trade links, do you think, between Manchester and West Africa become so strong? The Africa itself, you know, is a, is a country with a very um, plenty of sun, sunshine over there. And because of that, they love wearing beautiful fabrics. That apart, they have so many, so many, so many events that's associated to different um, occasions. For example, birthdays, death anniversary, coronation of the king, um, important um, events in the annals of that country. So different fabrics were designed for those specific occasions. So the Manchester textile industry, they were smart enough to, to send somebody down there to commune with the various community there, ascertain their, the perception of the kind of design or motifs or pattern they want to see. Also the color scheme as well. So that is exactly what they brought back to Manchester uh, that, that has become the textiles from, for Manchester community, for Manchester industries targeting the West African market. And because of the fact that they had a consultation with the African people, the interest was so high because they really feel that um, the, 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 the fabric resonates with their, with their culture, with their traditions, with their environment. So that was why this uh, reception was very high in the part of the African community. Now, a number of indigenous resist dye methods and designs also fed into the European trade. Yes. Can you tell me, for example, about the Yoruba Eleko resist dye technique? We, it's basically produced, Yoruba have about three different methods of fabrics. They have the tie and dye, they have the batik, they also have the asha oke, or the, the woven fabrics. So, the wax printed textiles was um, predominantly one of the um, high quality designs that were produced by the local traders for themselves for different occasions. And the process of making it includes one using um, cornstarch or resin as well as um, starch which when it is dissolved in other coal or warm water, it to form a paste. And that paste, they also have a way of uh, stamping the designs because they, they, what really happened was, they, they not started to, it's like something like, like a stamp, which this one was designed by the ABC here in Manchester. It's over hundred years old now. So this, copy as you can look very designs was actually a design from Abeokuta in Nigeria but it finally found its way in Manchester I'm very sure I, I saw this fabric myself with my eyes even the design is still in the market to date so the design were copied also by uh, Nick by brought by Nikki Ramion and um, was designed by Nikki and also where where designs were brought back to to Manchester, produced in a massive quantity, targeting the Africa's African market.
So like I said, they use um, cornstarch, which is um, the paste is made. The, the stamp goes into the, the, the paste and the stamp on the fabric itself. So this is how the same method of producing the wax were, were, were made by the local women in, in, in Abeokuta, Nigeria. Similarly to what is done here with industrial machines. What are some of the meanings behind some of the emblems we often see in these fabrics? Um, the first one is um, Akomofuna, which is um, a, a staff. Because if you look at the, the kings in Africa, they have the emblem of royalty, which um, is made up of two metal staff. One is called Ada, the other one is called Eben. And it's, most of the time it's like cross sword like that. The sword crosses um, stuff like that, which is held by two of the chiefs or the king attendant just behind the, the, the king. That emblem becomes, like I said, is what um, have now become a, a design motif for, for fabrics that were used predominantly by kings and other chiefs associated with the domain of that kingdom. So where you can see the stamp is a symbol of the staff of office that we also copied from African um, um, ceremonial sword to put, that was used to produce the African textiles here, targeting the African market. So whenever they, whenever they, they, they have that fabric on, it shows or is worn for a specific occasion, particularly for coronation of, of somebody or maybe the death of a king, which suggests that yes, that person is from a royal family or royal lineage. So this is another one, and the key means a lot. Without your key, you can't have access to your home. So the key plays a great part, shows that you are in charge of your home. So it's that, it also means authority as well to, to, for you to have access to a particular building. So when you put this on, it also suggests that you have some power or some privileges, which special <laughs> privileges in that community. And can you tell me a bit about the research process for the project? Where did you visit? Where did you go? Everything started at the Museums of Science and Industry in Manchester when I first saw the designs. It was from there I started doing some research from the internet and I discovered that there was one company that is left of all the 46 calico industry that were producing fabrics at that time that one of them is still based in Hyde, where they have the archive of all the fabrics produced over 100 of years ago. And they also the design studios also there. So I went there, I met with the staff. So that was, that was when they were able to link us with their management in, um, in Ghana. So we decided to, to travel down to Ghana to carry out more research. We first went to the to the factory itself and saw how the fabric is transformed from bare calico to finished products. Thereafter, we went to the market to sample the, the impression of various designers 
the various interpretation given to various fabrics. There are so many, and the, why the, the choice of color and um, how they are used. So we got that information. We also had to interview other people apart from those in Ghana because every culture, every country have in Africa have different ways of interpreting these motifs. And it's suited for any specific occasion that um, they, they deem necessary to wait. It's also used for church ceremony, church anniversary, for school uniform. In fact, it cut across all sector of the community and the white print has become the, the grandeur of African designer motif. And knowing that the old design came from Indonesia through Europe back to Africa. In fact, it makes people really want to have to, to have it. And I want, really want to say that our mothers, that's one of the things they pass on to their daughters because the fabric have a very high quality and it's not the kind of fabric you wash every, every time. In fact, it's washed by the morning dew. It's brought out very early hours of the morning and after about two hours, it's brought back home, folded and kept away. And it can stay in that condition for up to 40, 50 years. You can find the Burt Whistle and Oddie designs and swatches at Blackburn Museum and Art Gallery. They also feature in the Lancashire Textile Gallery, a collaboration between Gawthorpe Textiles Collection, the University of Central Lancashire and the British Textile Biennial, with contributions from museums and archives across the county. Head to LancashireTextileGallery.com to find out more about its changing programme of collections, exhibitions and artist commissions. The British Textile Biennial 2023 runs from the 29th of September to the 29th of October, exploring the environmental impact and regenerative potential of textiles and fashion. You can find out more on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>